0: Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for your word and how it renews our mind, how it transforms us, how you use it to prune off those things in our lives that don't need to be there, um, that distract us from you and from bearing fruit for your kingdom. So, Lord, be with us now as, as we read the scriptures, as we go over the the sermon and I pray Lord that everything that you want to settle in our hearts and minds from this message each one of us would take hold of and take with us today throughout our lives in Jesus name I pray amen amen Um, today we are in Galatians chapter 3 and uh, we'll be doing verses 10 through 14 Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this? For all who rely on works of the law are under curse, for it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Paul has been in in our study through Galatians, Paul has been addressing the issue of the Galatians turning away from the gospel of grace to trusting in the law, being obedient to the laws that God gave to Moses. And first, as we started this letter to the Galatians, he was using his own experience as an example. I mean, here he was a persecutor of Christians and then He sees the resurrected Lord and is totally transformed into a proclaimer of the gospel. He told how the apostles had confirmed the validity of what he taught. He even mentioned his confrontation with the apostle Peter who was uh, kind of compromising his convictions about whether you have to obey the law or not by refusing to eat with with, uh, the Gentiles. And then in verse 6 in this chapter, he moved to the scriptural basis for his argument. You'll always find in the letters of Paul, he backs up what he's saying with Old Testament scripture. Uh, And the example he's giving is of Abraham and how Abraham was made righteous simply by believing God's word, believing what God had promised him. In our text for today, he continues by using the law to show that By trusting in the law, we put ourselves under a curse. If if that's how we're trying to get to God is through the law, the law says we're actually under a curse. And I'll go back to verse 10 and read that again. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and then he quotes scripture, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them and do them. So these uh, five verses that we're looking at today explain from the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible, why the law cannot save us. And And explains how the law shows us actually that someone can save us. The Messiah that is coming will save us. He begins with an important point that to have the blessings under the law which, which, by the way, are mostly physical blessings that are described. If we want those blessings, then we have to obey it all. All 613 laws that God gave to Moses. And if we fail in one point, we put ourselves under a curse. Now, Jews realized how impossible this was. And some Jews even suggested that if just 10 men could keep all the law, the Messiah would come and set up the kingdom. Jesus made it abundantly clear when he expounded on the law that no one is able to keep the law for God considers the, the thoughts of the hearts just as having done the deed. Nor does anyone honor God as we should. As he deserves to be honored as the highest priority in life, so trying to be right by God's standards will always have us coming up short. But then you say, "Well, why? Why did He give us the law then? Why was this age of the law necessary? I mean, it went on for hundreds of years. They were, that they were, un, the Jews were under this this law. So what? What's it for? It's because one of our most detrimental hindrances and I say us I mean mankind is that we think we're good enough for God we think that somehow if we do enough good deeds then God being loving as he is is going to say well you were good enough come on in that that mindset has run throughout human history and it's prevalent today I mean if you just ask anybody uh, that that's not in a Bible-believing church, uh, do you think you can get to heaven? They'll, they'll say, well, I've been pretty... They start telling you how good they are as compared to somebody else. We're blinded, really, by our own pride, thinking we're good enough. God had made it abundantly clear throughout Scripture that we fall way short of his glory. And that was the main purpose of the law to make us realize how far short we fall. We acknowledge the law is right, but we also know that we just can't keep it. And therefore we know we are under the condemnation of the law. If we fail in one point, we fail in all. And the scripture says, the soul that sins must die. That's the curse of the law. And if we stopped there, we'd all go away. <laughs> feeling helpless and hopeless, amen. Recently, there was a quote from a, uh, we saw frequently about this Soviet judge who cited was cited as saying, show me the man and I'll show you the crime, right? There are so many laws that if you, you want to find something against somebody, if you look hard enough and deep enough, you can find some way they violated even man's laws. In other words, they can convict anyone they want to convict. And that was one reason so many Jews in Jesus' day didn't even try. They didn't even make an attempt. And the religious, the very conservative Jews, would call those people sinners. And lots of times in your New Testament, when you come across the word sinners, it just means a Jew who wasn't making a a concerted effort to keep all the laws. They knew they couldn't, so they didn't try. It was those people that Jesus hung out with. Now, why in the world was that? It's because he realized they knew they couldn't do it and they needed help. They needed something outside of themselves. In other words, they realized the truth. And that's what he was there for. Let let me give you an example. The Ten Commandments tell us not to covet anything that belongs to our neighbor, right? That's the Tenth Commandment. And that means that in your heart, if you wish you had your neighbor's wife or their car or their house or their children or their perfect lawn or whatever it is that God's blessed them with, you have violated God's command. In the church, we have spiritual covetousness. So the Bible tells us we're to desire the best gifts, but... To be envious of a gift that God has given someone else? Wow, they're so hospitable. I wish I had their gift. And by the way, why did they get that gift? Because they don't do it really well. I mean, they do it, but I could do it better than them. That's saying God made a mistake, gave it to the wrong person, and you're comparing yourself with someone else and saying God should have done it to me. God should have given me that gift. I'd do a better job with it. So who's never coveted something that wasn't theirs? We're all guilty of breaking God's laws and not honoring him as we should. So we're condemned by the law. And the law exists to to curb our bad behavior and to convict us when we violate it. You know, no one comes to a judge and says, yes, your honor, I'm I'm guilty, I I ran the red light, but at least a thousand times I stopped at the red light. So you should let this one slide. The law doesn't work that way. The law is there to condemn us, to judge us, to punish us for not being compliant. The laws of Moses are only slightly different in that they promise a physical blessing for obedience and life for total obedience. But like our legal system, it doesn't count your good deeds when you're convicted of disobedience. That's the curse that Paul's talking about. The law condemns us. And that's why Paul was so excited to conclude at the beginning of Romans chapter eight, that if we are in Christ Jesus, we are not under the law and that we are not to be under condemnation of the law. Hallelujah you should breathe a huge sigh of relief. So then why did Paul do many things that were written in the law? When you read the account of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts and read his letters, you find out that he was, an, he was in many times an observant Jew. He went into the temple. He, he did sacrifices and things, but he was not relying on the law for salvation, thinking that it merited God's favor. He knew it was delivered by God as a guideline of his requirements, which serves to convict everyone of sin and push us all toward faith in God's mercy received through the coming of the Messiah. He knew he was free to do as the spirit led, even when it contradicted the law, such as eating non-kosher food with the Gentiles, um, as we saw in the previous chapter. Pastor Todd Wilson explains it. He says, in order for the law to bless, the law must be kept. But this is where Israel fell short. She did not keep the law. If she would have, as Leviticus 18.5 says, then to be sure she would have found life through the law, but she didn't. So she received the curse of the law and thus death through the law And that that eventuated in her being exiled from the land of promise and scattered among the nations. The main point of these three verses, he writes, that's verses 10 to 12, then is simply this, Israel is under the curse of the law and so are all who depend on the works of the law. Yet this is not only a statement of historical fact, it's also a warning to anyone who, like the Galatians, Think that the law itself is the pathway to blessing and life. That's the end of his quote. Verse eleven. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for now he's quoting scripture: "The righteous shall live by faith." And uh, the the Jews have um, uh, an extra biblical book, not. They have the Old Testament like we have, but they also have a book they call the Talmud. It's a collection of writings of the sages, of their sayings, and, um, and the oral law. And in the Talmud, it says, and I'm quoting here, the whole law was given to Moses at Sinai in 613 precepts. David, in the 15th Psalm, brings them all within the compass of 11." Isaiah brings them to 6, that's Isaiah thirty-three fifteen, and Micah to 3, Micah 6, 8. Isaiah again to 2 in Isaiah 56, and Habakkuk to this 1. The just shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk 2, 4. So Paul's quoting that verse, Habakkuk 2, 4, that the Jews acknowledge is the final and ultimate command. It's such a key verse that it's repeated four times in scripture. Romans 1.17, Habakkuk 2.4, here we are in Galatians and in Hebrews 10.38, it's referenced four different times. Now, when you see a scripture that's repeated, very few passages are repeated more than two or three times, but this one, four times. When you see that repetition in scripture, it says, pay attention. This is really, really important. You know, if we don't get it the first time, we should get it the second. If we didn't get it the second, you better get it the third. And if you don't get it by the fourth, oh well. (laughs) So when you see words repeated, uh, expressions repeated, especially verses repeated, pay special attention to those. The law never declared that it made people righteous. But the law and the prophets and the Psalms which is the three parts of the Jewish scripture, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, all declare that faith is the way to righteousness. These facts clear up any question as to whether salvation, that is being right in God's eyes, is by the law or by faith. The law creates legalistic Pharisees and uptight Essenes. Faith creates humbly, grateful, redeemed sinners. Are any of those out there? Anybody a humbly grateful, redeemed sinner? I sure am humbly grateful. And instead of pointing at others and declaring how grateful we are that we're not like them, we cry out with gratitude that though we, are more, we were like them and sometimes still are, God's mercy is on our lives and we pray God has mercy on them as well. Jesus illustrated this in one of his parables in Luke chapter 11, verses eight to 13. A very religious man went up to the temple to pray, and he stood in a spot where everyone could see him, and he, he lifted his arms to heaven, and he prayed, oh Lord, I thank you that I observe all your laws, that I pay a 10% of even every mint leaf on my mint plants and, and keep them as faithfully as anyone can. And most of all, I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there on his knees praying. I thank you that I'm not like him. And the tax collector was over there on his knees, head bowed, beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, God heard that man's prayer. The tax collector, the despised tax collector's prayer. Those who try to obey the law look to self-willed determination. Faith looks to the power and the promises of God and and expects God to fulfill his word. The law glories in man's ability, but faith glories in the Lord the law tends toward boasting in oneself and give or giving up in frustration but faith boasts in the Lord what does it mean to be right, the righteous live by faith what does that incredible expression mean those who live by faith in God's word are counted righteous as Abraham was by believing God, Abraham was counted as righteous and by because he believed God's word, the word God spoke to him. And so we too, by faith, can believe God's word. To live in this verse is more than, than just having a beating heart because Jesus declared, I am the life, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So to have life, that we're talking about here is to have Jesus. It's to truly live an abundant life in the spirit. Now hear that phrase again, the righteous shall live by faith. It sounds a little different when you see it that way, when you know it's Jesus, Jesus life. Are you living by faith in the son of God who loved you and gave himself for you? Perhaps it's better to ask, to what extent are we living by faith in the Son of God and the Word made flesh? Life in Christ is increasingly living that faith life. Letting it take over all the natural tendencies and expectations until he is our all in all, like we sang about a minute ago. Verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So you either live by faith or you live by the law. You're either counting in yourself or you're counting in Christ. One is counted righteous. The other is cursed. There's also the life of the godless that is death while they're living. In that sense, they're just breathing, their hearts pounding, that kind of living. For every one of us, it is one of these, one or the other. That's the declaration of the word of God. And Paul's arguing here from Leviticus 18.5 that if you live by the law, you have to do it all. And right now, really, it's impossible. No, no, no inspired, adamant, determined Jew can live it all because the temple has been destroyed. And so they can't, they can't do a huge section of the law. It makes us realize that fallen creatures cannot live up to the standards of our holy God. We could try for a thousand years and even if we finally got it down pat by some amazing feat of careful routine and effort, we still have our sinful past to deal with. The ritual sacrifices only covered sin for a time. They had to be repeated year after year But the law also declares that the Lord is the one who sanctifies us. That's another line that's repeated over and over in the the law. It does not tell us how, but it gives pictures and illustrations and symbols that are fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus used one of those pictures when he was talking to Nicodemus. Remember, he said just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So the son of man be lifted up. He was talking about this time when the Jews uh, were like they commonly were murmuring and complaining to Moses that something wasn't what they wanted. They didn't have enough food. They didn't have enough water. They were tired of manna. And so the Lord sent these fiery serpents into the camp and their bite was deadly. And so they cried out to Moses, save us, help us. So God told Moses, make a a bronze staff, put a bronze serpent on the staff and put it in the center of the camp and everyone that looks at it will be healed. And so they were. And Jesus said, that's gonna happen to me. You see, he saw in those Old Testament pictures, which we should see, that they're really all about him that they point in some way to him and explain us about the one that's coming. That to look by faith to him, to believe like Abraham believed in him, we have life. And that's just one of dozens of pictures of how God would provide a way through faith to be righteous, to look by faith to God's provision hanging on a pole, in this case, the cross. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, again, Old Testament quotation, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Jesus took the curse that was on us because of our disobedience and the punishment those sins deserved. That passage in the Torah pronounced a curse on anyone who was hung on a tree. I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of a strange law. I mean, could a no good person be hung? What if an innocent person was hung? But then there are no innocent people, right? Except for one. Jesus had no sin, and yet he was nailed to a wooden cross, the equivalent of a tree. So why would he be cursed? Because he intentionally received our sins, the sins of all mankind throughout all time so that he might be, might receive the curse that would have fallen on us. That's what verse 13 is declaring. If he didn't willingly take our sins upon himself, I don't think they could have crucified him. God would not have allowed it. He couldn't be cursed after living a sinless life. So think about what that means to us. As he hung there in that cursed three hours of darkness, what horrors took place as God's righteous justice for the world's sins was dealt out on him. Only God in the flesh could withstand all that we deserve in those hours of darkness on the cross. It was so much more than physical pain, and I don't think it's possible for us to comprehend it but it certainly was compounded by the physical pain. When the curse fell on Egypt, this is a a repeat of a curse that happened to the Egyptians, the the 10 plagues that fell on the Egyptians. One of the curses was darkness. And yet when that curse of darkness fell over the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen was not dark, it was light. But here we have that same curse and the darkness covers the Jewish people this time. If they're thinking about the scripture, they're realizing we are under the same curse those Gentiles that we despise are under. The darkness is over us. And yet I think that The darkness was tinged with a blessing for all who were there witnessing the event I think would have been forever traumatized had they seen what took place during those three hours of darkness. But most importantly, the darkness lifted. The light returned and our savior was victorious. He declared our debt was paid in full when he said, it is finished. Darkness cannot prevail the light of the world is victorious verse 14 so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith so why did he do that for us why was he willing to take all that on himself it's as if a judge sentenced a man to the electric chair and then voluntarily took his place there in that chair but even that falls way short of the wonder of what Jesus did for us. The blessing promised to Abraham that was for the world came to us through Jesus' sacrificial act. Justification by faith in Jesus' atoning death sanctifies us in God's eyes so that he can give us his Holy Spirit. In other words, God cannot abide what is sinful and Jesus' sacrifice makes our spirit holy. So that opened a way for us to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that implies eternal security. But beware thinking you are secure when you are not yet so. And that's why we have the doctrine of perseverance. That's why the Bible tells us over and over to endure to the end. We must continue in faith to the end. If Jesus would go through the horror of the cross and what happened in those three hours of darkness that we might be considered righteous and receive the Spirit, how needy are we of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit then prepares us experientially to be the bride of Christ. You know, Adam's side was opened so that the bride could be made. Jesus side was opened so that his bride could be made, the church. What I mean by preparing us experientially to be Jesus' bride is that the Holy Spirit and the word prune our lives once we enter that new covenant. The Spirit and the word point out where our lives are not like that of our Savior. They challenge us moment by moment to let Jesus live in and through us. And that's why it's so important for us to be grounded in the word of God, to study it, to meditate on it, to memorize it. It's the sword of the spirit by which we do battle with the world and the flesh and the devil. And that's what shapes us and gets us ready to be the bride of Christ. Of course, it's the grace of God working in us despite our shortcomings. Listen to how Ephesians 5 declares it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of the water with the Word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see how this is saying the same thing Paul is saying in verse 14? He's saying that our, that is the church's relationship with Jesus is to be that of a bride with her husband. The husband is to love the bride as Jesus loves us. He gave himself for us on the cross. Why? It's not only saving us from the wrath of God. I mean, that's the reason most of us come to Christ. That's the reason I first started asking God to save me. I was afraid of the wrath of God, but it's to make us holy so that we can be vessels of the Holy Spirit who shapes us into the bride of Christ. That means he sets us apart for himself. He cleanses us by washing us with the word so that he can present us to himself without stain or wrinkle or anything that we might be holy and blameless. Now, none of us has yet reached that state of perfection, amen? but we are in process. And he promised to finish the work he started in us. In fact, we will even be like him, meaning we will have those communicable attributes of his, the love, the joy, the peace, all the fruits of the spirit. And after that amazing promise, John wrote that if we have this hope, then we purify ourselves even as he is pure. In other words, we let him do that work in us. We present our lives as living sacrifices and let our minds be renewed by the word of God so that we see things the way our heavenly father sees them. In summation, Paul's telling all who read this letter that to try to find life in the law is not only futile, but it puts us under a curse. The law tells us that that's the case, but it also tells us there there's righteousness that be, can be obtained through faith in the promised seed of Abraham, who is Jesus. Life is obtained by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. That life sets us apart as the bride of Christ and the tra- transformation of our lives begins by the work of the Spirit and the word of God in our hearts and our minds. He's preparing us for the glorious day when we will be ready to be with him forever.